This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on 1 Samuel called Waiting for the Kingdom. And we are going to turn in the Word of God together in the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 8. 1 Samuel, chapter 8. And we'll see what God has for us today in this very old book, through whom his Spirit still speaks. 1 Samuel, chapter 8. Hear the word of the Lord. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them, and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifty and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants." He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyard and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. Of course, at one level, this is simply a story of the transition of an early Iron Age society from a loose tribal confederation to a centralized government with a king. But I doubt that's a matter of pressing urgency for anyone here today. 
But at a deeper level, this passage is about misguided security. About the people of God finding their trust not in the Lord God as their covenant king, but in human leaders and human systems. And that is more relevant to us today, perhaps, than at any time in history. But before we get into that aspect, let's dig into this story a little bit. Samuel, at this time, is an old man. 25 or 30 years have passed since the exciting moment of national renewal and repentance described in 1 Samuel, when God thundered from the heavens and scattered the Philistines as the Israelites pursued and struck them down. Several decades have passed. Samuel's been a good judge, but he's looking a little worn around the edges. He's not going to be around forever. And Samuel, like so many good leaders, bungles his succession plan because he appoints his two sons to be judges after him to take his position. And Samuel's a good man, but his sons are not good men. They are corrupt, they are greedy, they demand bribes, and they pervert justice. And there's a deep irony here, of course, because we don't have to look back too many chapters to find another judge, Eli, who was good at heart, but he was a weak and ineffectual father, and his sons were terrible men. And you'd think Samuel, growing up in that household, if he'd learned anything, he would have learned that lesson. But somehow, his sons do not walk in his ways, and they wander off and become bad men. Samuel is in the center of of the country at Ramah. He's doing a short, a pretty small circuit of a day's walk to surrounding cities, And his sons are judges, apprentice judges in Beersheba. And Beersheba is the very southern tip of the country, far away from Samuel. And archaeologists tell us that in the early 11th century BC, Beersheba was transitioning from a sort of temporary collection of tents to a permanent uh, town. But it was probably less than 200 people. So somehow these two sons are in some tiny little village And the word of their activities there quickly spreads throughout the country. These are not the kind of guys that we can trust to be our leaders. It's not so much the petty bribing that is the concern, but these are just not strong leaders that we feel can protect us. Samuel is getting old, and the future is looking pretty dubious. And so a delegation of elders, the senior National leadership come to Samuel. And no doubt they've consulted together beforehand because it might have been a bit intimidating coming to this prophet of the Lord. But they have assessed the situation. See, it's not just what's happened in the immediate past. For two or three centuries since Joshua led the people and taken over the land, things have been rough. Because every generation, some new oppressor arises some other neighbor or collection of tribes or raiders, and they sweep in and they tear down their vineyards and steal their crops, and the Israelites are just tired of being victims. And here's the chance 
to make some real social and political change. We're tired of the cycle of oppression and judges. That's just not a good way of doing things. We want something permanent. We want a strong leader. We want a central government, something that we can rely on, that we can trust in for our future. And it's telling that these men come to Samuel not to inquire of the Lord. Here is Samuel, this man who hears directly from God. What a wonderful opportunity to go to him and say, Samuel, would you pray for us and give us God's direction and provision for the future after you? They don't come to ask for prayer. The solution is so obvious, there in fact is no need to pray. You know, sometimes things are like that. It's just so clear what needs to be done. There's really no need in bothering God and asking him for his advice because we all know what it is already. It's a political problem in their minds, and political problems always require political solutions. It's a very mechanical way of looking at life, a very mechanical way that we are all deeply prone to. Because there was a reason for this cycle of oppressors and judges, and that was because the people were constantly apostatizing. They were wandering from God. They had sinful hearts. And God is the one sending these foreign armies in to bring the people to their senses so they repent and turn to him. It's actually a deeply spiritual issue at the root of things. But spiritual issues are quite uncomfortable to deal with, aren't they? Addressing my sin and my heart wandering from God, ah, who, who really wants to go into that uncomfortable area? It's much easier to look at it as a matter of politics, mechanics, of technique, something that I can control. Because frankly, I would rather reorganize than repent. I would rather change the system than ask God to change my heart. And that's exactly what these elders, these leaders, ask Samuel for. They have a demand. And these guys are, are quite blunt about this. Samuel, you're getting old and your sons suck. To be honest, your sons are terrible. You're looking like your time is up on this earth, and sorry to be so blunt with you, Samuel, but something's got to be done. We're past the point for polite talk. We need to do some business here. And we have agreed on what we need you to do for us. Appoint a king for us to judge us, to administer justice, and as will become clear, to protect us from our enemies. We want a strong, central institution, something that we can all look up to. We're not going from crisis to crisis. There's something permanent. We want a standing army that we can rely on to protect us. We want security in a king. And we want this king because look around us, Samuel. All the other nations are making this transition to kingship, and we don't want to fall behind here. Because when we start to fall behind politically and militarily, you get to a point where there is no catching up. This is not a matter of fashion merely. 
Life is real, man. There are real things happening here. And if the people of God are going to survive, we need to make some hard political decisions. And the tragedy of this, of course, is that the people of Israel had been summoned out of Egypt to be unlike the other nations. They were a special people. They were set apart for the worship of God. They were meant to be different. So people could look at them and say, who is this God that you worship who protects you and manifests his miraculous presence in your midst? But that kind of holiness, ah, it's, it's tiresome, isn't it? It's being weird is, yeah, it gets to be wearying. To go against the grain of everyone else, that just kind of drains your energy after a while. Why not do the sensible thing the way everyone else is so that we can keep up with them? And really, it's not easy to trust in this invisible God. It's not easy to trust in a God that you cannot see and you cannot touch and who our priests tell us live inside this inner sanctuary in the tent. And yes, we, you know, we did see some miraculous things and we heard some thunder, something seemed to happen, but you know, God can't always be relied on to fight on behalf of his people because sometimes God has fought against us. He doesn't always seem to be in our court, no matter what we do, whereas a king we know is always going to be on our side. The nice things about kings, the nice thing about kings is you can see them and you can touch them. And they have nice big armies that you can see and touch. And they have horses and chariots and aircraft carriers and missile launchers, all comfortingly tangible. And given the option, who wouldn't want those things in their possession than an invisible God who seems to act with disturbing freedom in relationship to his people? We're not saying we don't want to trust God. As a matter of last resort, it's good to have God on our side. But we want to set things up so well that we are never put into a position where we're forced to trust in God. That's the goal here. And Samuel is, he's not happy about this. Literally, the thing seemed evil in his eyes. And you can imagine there was a sense of personal hurt and disappointment that after all he'd done for these people, and he had been a faithful judge, there was a sense of personal rejection. But to his credit, he doesn't explode in their faces. Samuel goes to the Lord. And in fact, throughout this chapter, you see Samuel as the intermediary between God and his people, reporting conversations back and forth. And he prays to God and reports this conversation. And God says, Samuel, Samuel, don't take this so personally. This is not about you and your leadership. This is about me and my kingship. This request for political change, there's something deeper going on. My people are rejecting me as their king. 
They're asking for regime change from God reigning over them. Up to this point, the people did not have a king, a human king, because they had God as their king. And God was the one who had taken up the responsibility to lead his people, to guide them, to protect them from their enemies. God was the one who would go before the Israelite armies and defeat any enemy who tried to take them on, as had been proven again and again and again. There were miraculous stories of divine intervention that the people had experienced. And now, by asking for a human king, they're saying, we would rather have a human king than have God reigning over us. Frankly, we don't quite trust God, and we'd want, much rather would have a strong human leader. And God says, Samuel, this is what the people have always been like. This is nothing new. The oldest, the very oldest Israelite religious tradition is rebelling against God. That's what they've been doing from the very beginning. Not because Jewish people are especially evil, but that's just sinful human nature. They had to be dragged through the desert 40 years whining and complaining against God. And seemingly the first chance they get, they're darting off after some idol or another. And this is just the latest manifestation of a long list of grievances that God has against his people. And by being a faithful prophet of God, he says to Samuel, you are participating in this, receiving this rejection. As anyone who is faithfully speaking for God will also experience people's rejection of God. That's just what it means to be a prophet. But here's the surprising thing in this passage. The very odd thing is that despite the sin of the people, God tells Samuel, obey their request. Listen to them. Do what they ask you to do. And it's not because God is being outvoted. He's just bowing to political reality. God has deeper purposes at work through this whole episode. And the first and most obvious one is this, that sometimes God judges his people by granting their requests. Sometimes God disciplines us by giving us the sinful thing that we pray for. Now that should be a disturbing thought. And perhaps you might want to bow your head right now and thank God for all the things he said no to to you about that would have otherwise destroyed you. But sometimes God will say, fine, if you're insisting, I'll let you have your own way just so you can see what it's like. It makes me think of a Calvin and Hobbes cartoon. I remember reading years ago where uh, Calvin rushes, Calvin's a little six-year-old boy who has a a tiger that he thinks is real, and he rushes outside and says to his tiger, Hobbs, 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 guess what? Grandpa was here, and he left his cigarettes, and Mom said I can have the whole pack to smoke it. I never realized my mother was so cool. And of course, what happens is he lights up the first cigarette, and he's coughing and retching and vows never to smoke again. I don't know if that's the kind of parenting I would recommend, but in the case of Calvin, it was very effective. And sometimes God allows us to have our own way to teach us a lesson. 
And this is going to be a lesson that the people of God are going to be learning for a long time. But first, give them fair warning, God says. So Samuel utters quite, quite a long speech to the elders. And the repeated word in that speech is take. You're going to appoint a king and you want this guy, but it's all going to be about him taking from you. And there's going to be no area of your life or your family that his fingers do not reach in and select from. This king is going to be a burden upon you. You thought Samuel's sons were bad with their petty bribes in that petty town of Beersheba? This king is going to be a hundred times worse. And you're going to be crushed by the machinery of the state. And man, if these words were true, In Samuel's time 3,000 years ago, how much more true are they today as we see the rapidly expanding power of the state around us? There's something political scientists call the ratchet effect. Anytime there is a crisis, whether it's a war or an economic downturn, governments use that as an opportunity to increase their power. We'll now have the draft or income tax or whatever it might be. They increase their power. But strangely, when the depression is over or peace is signed, they never hand back that power, do they? It's a ratchet effect because it only goes in one direction. The power of the state always increases. And it's frightening now when you think of the massive technological power that governments have at their disposal for the purposes of social control. That is a disturbing thought. Be careful what you put your trust in because this kingship that you're asking for is actually going to be parasitic. It's going to be sucking the blood and the life from you and you are going to be like slaves. You cried out when you were in the land of Egypt under Pharaoh and God delivered you and now you foolish people You are demanding a pharaoh over yourselves. And here is the irony in this story. That the thing that God's people look to for security ends up enslaving them. The false gods we look to for security end up enslaving us. They promise safety. And they promise protection, but it comes at a terrible cost. Well, Samuel gives his warning, but he might as well have saved his breath to cool his porridge because the people, it's like he said nothing at all. No, they say to him, we want a king. We don't care about any of this stuff. We demand a king. And man, there's something in human nature that loves the strong man. No dictator, or very few of them, have ever gotten into power and stayed in power without mass popular support. Because after a time of instability and turmoil, people look to a strong leader And they're willing to offer this leader, after the revolution, supreme power to root out corruption and to destroy enemies and to put 
things right. And of course, in Lord Acton's famous dictum, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that is always what happens. But yet our hearts go after that strong political leader to give us security and future and a hope. And after all this, God says to Samuel, fine, this is what they want. Obey their voice. Make them a king. And Samuel says, okay, guys, go home to your city. The wheels are going to be set in motion in successive chapters for the kingship to arise in Israel. It seems like God is letting go of the steering wheel and allowing the Israelites to determine their own future and head off in a terrible direction. But in fact, there is a deeper purpose at work. Kingship, if you read back in the Bible, was always part of God's plan. God promised Abraham that kings would rise from him. Joseph or Jacob prophesied that a king would arise from Judah. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses speaks, in fact, of the time when the Israelites asked for a king, just like all the other nations, and here's how it ought to play out. And of course, in the very beginning of this book, in chapter 2, verse 10, in Hannah's song, she, she prays and celebrates and praises God for raising up an anointed king to rescue God's people. The king was what God had always planned And even though the people's request is sinful, mysteriously, it's still advancing the purposes of God. And in succeeding chapters, we're going to go through the tragic character of Saul. We're going to come to King David, who represents the brightest hopes for kingship in Israel. But of course, in the end, David is a tragic failure as well. The whole kingship was meant to point to a divine human king who would one day give his people true security. Jesus of Nazareth, the one who enters Jerusalem on a donkey, it turns out is the only human being who can be trusted with power and with absolute power. And he's not a king who comes to take and take and take and take But he says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as Christians, this is the kind of king we follow. He is the only human leader who can be trusted with all of our hearts. The only human leader. You know what? We're all on a quest for security. It's just a universal human need, and there's nothing wrong with that. And if you are a person without God, then you've got to build that security yourself. You've got to be your own God and try to control and dominate as much of your life and surrounding reality as possible to protect you from the many, many fears and things that could harm you or destroy you. And I want to remind you that you are terrifyingly fragile. And the bottom can drop out of your life in a moment. And there's nothing you can do to protect yourself from it. And of course, in the end, 
we all must face up to the horrible facts of death. Do you remember Jesus tells the story of the rich farmer who's lying in bed, thinking, man, I've, my barns are bursting, time to build some bigger barns. Take your rest, O soul. Things are going really well for you. And God says, you fool, this night your soul is demanded of you. But what about the people of God? Because that's who this chapter is really addressed to. The people who claim God as their king, who say they're in covenant with the Lord, what about us? And what about our own hearts? Are we like these elders who we may claim to trust God and we sing the songs and we read the verses, but we're setting up our lives so carefully to protect ourselves from all possible risk. And our deepest security is not in the living God whom we are expecting to intervene in our lives, but in humanly calculable solutions. In our power, our ingenuity, our money, our relationships, where is our trust? And there's a very easy way to test that question. And it's with our life of prayer. Is prayer a matter of first resort for you or a matter of last resort? Do troubles drive you to your knees or do they drive you, they put you into this hyperactive mode of trying to solve everything yourselves? And this challenge of our text, this challenge to trust in God as our king and not in human systems or leaders, it's about a lot more even than our personal relationship with God. Because this chapter has some pretty deep political implications. Because our political life is also a matter of our discipleship towards Jesus, and I wonder, in our politics, whether we are really manifesting deep trust in Jesus as King and as Lord and as Savior. And again and again, the Bible tells us, do not put your trust in princes. Don't put your trust in princes. And again and again, the people of God are seduced into putting their hope into human leaders who promise, I mean, they promise amazing things. But in the end, they always disappoint us. Let me say a few words to our American brothers and sisters here. And I'm choosing my words very carefully. I wonder if your own political choices and your own political advocacy is really reflecting a deep trust in Jesus as king. One of the most disturbing things coming out of America is a pair of surveys 
One was taken in 2011, one in 2018. And the question in both surveys was the same. Do you believe that the personal character of political leaders matters in their public life? Does what they do in private have anything to do with what they do in public? And this question was asked of evangelicals, I believe white evangelicals. And in 2011, 60% said, yes, private character matters. It's very important for whom we choose to lead us. 2018, same question, went down from 60% to I believe it was 16.8% of evangelicals, of people who claim Jesus as king over their lives, and suddenly we're all moral relativists and character no longer matters. And we all know what changed during that time, of course. I have to wonder, is it, our, is it really our deep personal convictions that are driving our political choices? Or have we become so partisan, so lined up with one leader or another, that in fact our personal convictions are beginning to change, if we even had them at all? And I leave that question between you and God, because it's not my job as your pastor to tell you how to vote or how to implement particular policies. But we have a witness in this world. We're not meant to be like all the other nations. We're not meant to get ourselves so dirtied by partisan politics and worldly solutions that we're acting as if Jesus is no longer king. Frankly, we don't trust that God can intervene in whatever political, national situation anguishes us, agonizes us, and so we look to some national leader or another. And of course, that's not a problem limited to Americans. Of course not. That's an issue going on all around the world. And it is a challenge for all of us to trust that Jesus and Jesus alone is king. Do you know what worldliness is? It's not about music and movies. Worldliness is practical atheism. It's believing even if God exists, he's not relevant to the real world. I mean, God's relevant in this room. He's relevant when I read my Bible and when I pray. But in the real world, God doesn't matter and I do things just like everybody else. Our hope is not in worldly leaders, worldly systems, and worldly calculation. Because if it is, what are we doing here? We might as well just shut this whole thing down and leave. We're all wasting our time. And therefore, if there's anything that marks this church, may it be a deep spirit of prayer individually and corporately seeking the power of God. Because without the power and presence of God, we have no confidence for the future. The philosopher Glenn Tinder wrote these words comparing assurance and hope. He says this, With all our self-confidence, we do not have great hope. What we have instead is assurance, a very different thing. Assurance 
is the feeling that all is under our control, or at least that it can be, given enough effort. All problems, consequently, are soluble. I haven't solved all problems, but given enough application, there's no problem that I or we could not solve. That's assurance. Hope, on the other hand, is the feeling that all will turn out well, though not necessarily due to human foresight and action. All will be well, and all will be well, and all manner of things will be well, because Jesus Christ is on the throne. He's God's true anointed king. He reigns over the nations, and nothing happens without his permission. And our hope, therefore, is not in human politicians or human leaders or human pastors, not in human ourselves, but in God and in God alone. And may this be the way that we begin this year placing our hope squarely on Jesus the King. Shall we pray and ask God for this grace? Father God, we come before you and we confess to you how deeply we have trusted in ourselves and in other human beings. And how in so many ways we have rejected you as our king, our refuge, and our defense. We pray that your Holy Spirit would reveal to us those particular things that each of us needs to repent of. And Lord, increase our faith. Increase our faith. That is a prayer we know you will always answer. We want to be the kind of people who boast, not in our money or our political power or cultural power, but boast in Jesus. We love you, we trust you, and our hope is in you, O Lord. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.